Good morning. Good to be with you today. Uh, I want to also uh, just extend a warm, happy Mother's Day to you. Um, <clears throat> we, uh, if you're visiting with us today, you've come to us in the middle of a sermon series. We're in the book of 1 Corinthians. Um, and as we celebrate Mother's Day, uh, it's an easy move from thinking about your family and your mom shepherding and loving your family and this book to the Corinthian church, because the church at Corinth was a mess, and maybe your family was a mess too. I know ours was in a lot of ways. We were sitting around uh, just sharing memories about my mom that passed away a couple of weeks ago, and uh, my brothers and my sister and me and my dad were just uh, remembering things, and oftentimes we were circling to things that were just what happened in, our, in that time in our family and things like that and how our, our mom loved us uh, despite it. Well, the book of 1 Corinthians uh, is not unlike that. Uh, the church at Corinth was, as I said, a mess. They did lots and lots of things wrong. Um, I've entitled the sermon series, The Call to Be Spiritual, because that's what the Apostle Paul was doing as he wrote this letter. He was calling the church to be who they are, to be spiritual, to stop acting like the world. And uh, not only did you come and visit in the middle of a sermon series, but actually in the middle of a part one, part two sermon. Uh, so I've entitled the sermon, uh, The Obstacle of Arrogance. And it's the second part, uh, but I think it'll stand alone uh, just fine. So welcome. We're glad that you've joined with us. Um, I was thinking about all of the uh, professions and uh, jobs that are represented in our church family. Um, uh, we have a banker. We have, uh, a, 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 well, retired now, but a machinist. Um, we have uh, an accomplished nurse. Uh, we have uh, a couple of different kinds of designers. Uh, we have engineers. Um, we've got a man who makes sure all the systems in a very large high school keep running so that all the students and teachers can be in that school. And I was just sort of letting my mind kind of think about all of these different positions. We have a printer, and we could go on and on. We also have mothers, right? We have mothers who nurture and educate and protect and train up uh, children so that they'll find their place of influence in this world. Uh, I was one of those kids. I had a mom that helped me get to the place that I'm at today. Many see the old professions. Uh, we have conversations and, and articles written about the old professions that were essentially three doctors and lawyers and clergymen. And then, of course, there are people in government, right? We have judges and, and congressmen and, and in other places, kings. We just saw the coronation of a king. Perhaps you saw it um, in the United Kingdom. And I would just ask you, in light of all of these different kinds of occupations, all of these different callings, right, um, what esteem do you hold for people in different positions? How do you value them uh, in your minds? What kind of status do you have, as long as we're talking about esteem, right? How do you uh, sort of rate yourself? Do you consider yourself a person of influence, um, if you were honest with yourself, how do you see yourself measured up against other people? How do you regard yourself versus how do you 
regard others. And uh, maybe finally, getting to the nub of this text that we're going to look at, how do you see yourself in relation to your pastors in a local church? Um, so these are some of the thoughts I want you to be, be percolating in your head as we turn our attention to the Word. So we're going to be in 1 Corinthians chapter 4, uh, and in particular, we're going to be in verses 8 through 21. I'm going to read um, those verses to you, and then we're going to talk about it and try to figure out what it is God's saying in them. So 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 8 through 21, this is God's Word. He speaks to us, to His people through it, um, and it reads like this. Already you have all you want. Already you have become rich. Without us, you have become kings. And would that you did reign so that we might share the rule with you. For I think that God has exhibited us apostles as last of all, like men sentenced to death, because we have become a spectacle to the world, to angels and to men. We are fools for Christ's sake, but you are wise in Christ. We are weak, but you are strong. You are held in honor, but we in disrepute. To the present hour we hunger and thirst. We are poorly dressed and buffeted and homeless, and we labor, working with our own hands. When reviled, we bless. When persecuted, we endure. When slandered, we entreat. We have become and are still like the scum of the world, the refuse of all things. I do not write these things to make you ashamed, but to admonish you as my beloved children. For though you have countless guides in Christ, you do not have many fathers. For I became your father in Christ Jesus through the gospel. I urge you then, be imitators of me. That is why I sent you Timothy, my beloved and faithful child in the Lord, to remind you of my ways in Christ, as I teach them everywhere in every church. Some are arrogant, as though I were not coming to you. But I will come to you soon, if the Lord wills, and I will find out not the talk of these arrogant people, but their power. For the kingdom of God does not consist in talk, but in power. What do you wish? Shall I come to you with a rod, or with love and a spirit of gentleness? Well, when I originally introduced this chapter, um, if you were here, I asked you to picture a road that you're supposed to travel. And, and I asked you further to imagine a couple of trees that had fallen across the road so that you couldn't pass it, but trees which you yourself caused to block your own way. That's the that's the shape of this text. That's the argument that Paul is uh, advancing here. The theme we considered for our text was this. Arrogance keeps the church from benefiting from the shepherds God provides. That's the sentence you want to hang on to. That's the theme. It's the overarching meaning of this, of this chapter. Arrogance keeps the church from benefiting from the shepherds God provides. Now, in the first part of that sermon, I... Uh, I made the argument that while there are no apostles today, uh, there are pastors of local churches who have inherited the role of spiritual leadership. And so that's why the theme I'm presenting to you is, is, is this, that arrogance keeps the church from benefiting from the shepherds God provides. Well, 
In the first part of, of this sermon, I talked about the first tree, the first obstacle of arrogance, um, and that was seeing yourself as your pastor's judges. This week, we look at the second tree, the second obstacle to benefiting from the shepherds God provides, and that is when you arrogantly see yourself as kings in this world. Kings having arrived at a place of importance or status in the world. Assimilating into the world's system, arriving at a place of the world's admiration, if you will. Achieving a status among the people that hate Christ, though, is not a good thing. And that's where you get the sort of rebuke, the tone of rebuke in our text. Doing so keeps you from seeing your need for ongoing spiritual help and maturation. And it causes you to look down at the lives of faithful pastors, lives of devotion that they model and that they call you to. I made the connection in the first sermon about how arrogant I was as an 18-year-old and how I would often, you know, just sort of blow off my mom and dad's uh, counsel to me. And it's that kind of idea, this arrogance that, that now doesn't see, the, the first part was judging those that lead you, but here it's more thinking of yourself as just in this exalted position, like I have arrived, I don't need any help from anyone else, and so that's where we have arrived at this theme, arrogance keeps the church from benefiting from the shepherds God provides. Paul had already issued the warning to the Corinthians about this idea of judging, and now we pivot to this idea of of, of seeing themselves as kings. Uh, in the first seven verses, Paul had, had said, if you will stop being so arrogant, you're not their judges. And now here in the rest of the chapter, he says, stop being so arrogant, you are not kings that should look down on your pastors as if you have no need of them. This idea of being kings is found in our text. It's in the first verse, in verse 8. Right in the middle there, without us, Paul writes, you have become kings. As we examine this passage, as we trace its logic, I want to take you through it and, and try to answer three questions that, that the text presents. The first is just starting off with kind of 101 level, just the basics. What is a king? What does he mean by this, saying you are already kings? Secondly, uh, going to the heart of Paul's warning, the second question is, what is the danger of seeing yourself as a king? And then finally, um, the, the third question, urging us to see God's wise provision for us, this question, why do we need faithful pastors? Why, is, why can't I just uh, you, you know, get there on my own, right? So let's take them one at a time, those three questions that will get us to this theme of arrogance keeps the church from benefiting from the shepherds God provides. So first, what is a king? That sounds like a good, good thing, right? I mean, there's a, there's a movie that escapes me at the moment, but that has the line in it, it's good to be the king, right? So, so what, is, what does Paul mean here? How had the Corinthians become kings, right? Well, when we see how the apostle introduces the idea, we get a pretty good picture. So verse 8 starts off this way. Before he brings this idea of kings, he says, Already you have all you want. Already you have become rich. 
the, the English Standard Version, which is the version of the Bible I've just read from, um, it, it has this idea of, of the, the people there having all they wanted. The Greek word means to be satiated, to, to eat all you need or want, to be satisfied. And so the idea of, of being filled up here, along with thinking oneself rich, is, is really to be self-assured feeling that you have all you could ever need, spiritually speaking. That you, that you have no need of anyone to lead you, to help you grow in the grace and knowledge of the Lord. You're all good. You're all stocked up with wisdom. That's the idea. This self-confidence likely sprang from what we've already talked about that was happening in Corinth. Corinth, of course, was affected by uh, Greek philosophy, and they were sizing up their church leaders using the wrong lens. They weren't looking at, at the purity of the gospel they preached, but rather how showy they were or how great of orders they were. And so this idea of seeing these men as simply speakers to entertain them rather than build them up feeds into this idea of self-confidence. I've got all I want. These are just some things to entertain me. Not only had they arrogantly judged the multiple leaders God had provided them, they also saw themselves as above them, like kings, if you will. And so they saw church leaders as possessions of a sort. It was not unlike the rich young man in Luke 18, seeing Christ and his teachings as merely another thing to add to his many belongings. Now, being rich doesn't keep you out of heaven, that's to be sure. That's not the point, right? But seeing your wealth and your position as your identity, placing your hope in it, that certainly will keep you out of heaven. Because then you have no room for a Savior, you see. But seeing yourself through this lens, this lens of, of I've got all that I need, friends, it's a lie, isn't it? It's a lie to say, I'm all stocked up. I, I have eaten all I need of the spiritual food. I don't need anyone else to guide me or help me. Being a follower of Christ is, at its core, a departure from finding your worth, your purpose, your life in the things of this world. It's, it's declaring, essentially, that I have nothing and I need God. To think otherwise is simply fooling yourself. Notice Paul's sarcasm in the text. Right after he says, you have all you want, you're rich, you've become kings, then he says, I wish you did reign so that we could also reign with you. It's just dripping with sarcasm. He's like, it's a lie. You're not a king. And so I can't reign with you. You get it? In other words, he's saying, you have lots of needs. Wise up. Now, don't misunderstand what I'm saying here. As I said, it's no great sin to be wealthy or successful or achieve things in, in business or, or, or in this world or even to be admired by people. These are not bad things. The history of God's people provides countless examples of successful people. Abraham, Job, Lydia, the merchant of Thyatira, and Joseph of Arimathea, to name just a few. The great evils, as I, evil, I said, is in putting your hope in your wealth and influence, seeing yourself as complete, lacking nothing. These things are, are not true, and they, they drive you to bad places. The treasures and opportunities in this world will all come 
to nothing in the end. I just had a conversation this weekend about the inevitability of death, whether through old age or cancer or even an infection from surgery. The church can wrongly promote people who are successful in the world, in the church, because they, they've been successful in business or something like that as a, some sort of indicator, and, and that's not a proper measuring stick, is it? I mean, you can be very, very successful in this world and, and be very, very lacking in spiritual maturity, for example. God often uses such people, people of, of real resource and success, to advance his missionary and mercy work in the world. So again, there's nothing wrong with having positions of influ- influence and, and great resources. Such things can be leveraged for the church. Church can benefit from them, but they are in no need of them. God is their resource. So this warning here then is not about being successful. It's not, it's not about seeing yourself as relatively mature or something like that. The warning is, is about the error of seeing yourself in an exalted position as if you need nothing. Paul sarcastically calling his friends wise in verse 10. Oh, we're fools for Christ, but you're wise. As I said, the text is just dripping with sarcasm like that. God determines who is wise, not the world who rejects his son and the salvation he purchased through his death. God is the one who says who is wise and what is the wise course. Notice the contrast between how the apostles had been living and how they had been treated compared to their Corinthian friends. We see it in verses 9 and 10 here. Listen again. For I think that God has exhibited us apostles as last of all, like men sentenced to death because we have become a spectacle to the world Then he says, we are fools for Christ's sake, but you are wise in Christ. We are weak, but you are strong. You are held in honor, but we in disrepute. Now, Paul's not whining here. This is no laundry list of complaints he's he's writing uh, to his friends. He's pointing out the difference of how the world is treating the apostles, himself included, over against how the Corinthian Christians were being treated. The unbelieving world sees those who, hold, who speak of Christ as the only way to be reconciled to God. They're seen as a spectacle. Did you hear what I just said? The world sees those who speak of Christ as the only way to God. They look at those people as spectacles. They see them as narrow-minded simpletons, as wrong-headed, brainwashed buffoons. Because of this, they are held regularly in low regard, in disrepute, the text says. But the the apostles embraced this as a great honor. This lowliness in the world's perspective, they saw this as a great honor. To be seen as fools for Christ is to give your life to Him in the great honor of his service, to represent him, to follow the path of the cross that in this life leads to derision and rejection, but in the next life leads to exaltation and great joy that never ends. But it is the humble, hard path that leads there. 
that leads to commendation and, and, and places of high position with the Savior in the next world. And that is where the true reigning will take place. That's where the true kings and queens will be seated, where the everlasting riches of knowing Christ will be fully and forever enjoyed. This is wisdom. This is, this is the apostles and how they were living their lives and how they were being treated on the one hand. And so the apostle calls the Corinthians to consider why they, on the other hand, are being seen so wise and strong and honorable in the world. I said it's not, as I said before, don't miss the point here. It's not that someone respecting you in this world is a bad thing. That's not the point of the text. There's a contrast being presented here. It is surely because the contrast for how the Corinthians were being treated was surely because they were seeking the approval of the influential in Corinth. They were seeking that kind of honor in the world's eyes. They had been content with hiding their allegiance with Christ and those persecuted for his name. They had been ashamed of the gospel, downplaying their lowliness in Christ, wanting to be seen as wise by their neighbors, as somebodies in the world. Christian friends, do you do this? Do you keep your Christianity a secret? Do you try to just blend in? Do you try to remain silent when you see great evils and sins that are being talked about and even done right before you? We're called to, to be shining stars against the black night of this world, right? We're, we're, we're to be candles that are lit and placed on a table. We're not to be hidden, but we often do that, don't we? And the Corinthians had done just that. They'd blended into the world. They had, they had uh, ducked their their head under the covers, as it were, so that they might be seen as good in the eyes of the world, rather than be treated with the shame that Christians who speak of what they believe, how they are often treated. Arrogance keeps the church from benefiting from the shepherds God provides. Well, the, the first way to get to this theme, to understand this text, is to to see what it is that Paul meant as kings in the first place. And we've done that. He said you're kings in the sense that you see yourself as arriving, right? Having no spiritual need, no, no need of growth in spiritual things. But it was all a lie because they were hiding their spirituality and not growing in it. Well, we move to the second question, what's so bad about being a king? And I've hinted at it several times. What are the dangers of seeing yourself as, as having arrived, spiritually speaking, being all filled up with everything you need for success in this world? Well, it comes down to this. God gives grace to the humble, Right? He opposes the proud, but, but, but gives grace to the humble. Seeing yourself as having no need of spiritual guidance is the pinnacle of pride. And so it sets you, yourself up against God and Him working for you. Friends, it's how everybody becomes a Christian in the first place, right? We're all born into this world in need of Christ. We're, we've all sinned and we have God's judgment coming. 
and yet he sent his son into the world to die in our place and rise again. And the proud say, I have no need of that. And their reward is eternal destruction. But for those who humble themselves and say, I have nothing apart from Christ. I must have him. God is for those people and, and forgives them of their sin and awards them with, with eternal life. And so it's, it's from the very beginning this idea of God being for the humble and against the proud, but it also is the case in the church. Even Christians do this. Even, even inside the church, we often arrive at these places where we're like, I don't need anything. I'm all discipled up. I'm mature. I don't need a spiritual guide or something like that. And that's the height of arrogance. And when you arrive at such places, when you look at the, and I'm not saying this because I'm a pastor, when, when, when you arrive at the place where you view pastors and spiritual leaders as just like, yeah, I like them well enough, and they speak, you know, in a way that I enjoy or whatever, but I don't really have any need of them, that's the height of arrogance, and it keeps you, it hinders you, it's an obstacle for your spiritual growth, for your good. And so be warned, that's, that's, the, that's the great error, that's the great danger of seeing yourself as all filled up with spiritual things. I mean, this temptation is as old as our first parents in Eden, right? We don't need God's good, you know, command. We're, we're all set. We've got the serpent here that's telling us to be like God's, right? And, it, and so it goes. The allure, the allure of being somebody in the world because of your status can keep you from the massive, ongoing advantage of submitting yourself to the spiritual nourishment God offers through local church pastors and teachers. And this is the reason for Paul's rebuke of the Corinthians. The Corinthian Christians saw themselves as already having achieved spiritual heights needing no more instruction, no more discipleship in the way of the cross. Notice how Paul describes how they reached such so-called maturity. Verse 8, without us, you have become kings. They were seeing themselves as above the need for spiritual guides, beyond the need for men to shepherd their souls. Consider how this form of arrogance goes hand in hand with sitting as your pastor's judges. Right? It's the same, like they're, they're intertwined. To look at those that God has given you for your good. Think in other categories too. Think about your parents. Think about your mom that God, that God gave you to give you wisdom. For you to sit back and judge your mom, right? As if you're above her. Or that you're all filled up and you don't need any more advice from her, something like that. It's just the height of arrogance. And it's this blocker, it's this roadblock that keeps you from benefiting from them. These people that God has given you. Arrogance keeps the church from benefiting from the shepherds God provides. And what is that benefit? It is the steady shepherding of your soul toward what is truly wise, what is truly good, what will last, and what will have eternal consequence. So that's two questions down. What are kings? What's the danger of seeing yourself as a king? And finally, why is it a bad thing, this danger? 
to say it another way, why do we need faithful pastors? Why do we care if seeing ourselves as kings keeps us from that? Why is that good? God gave pastors to us for our development, for our equipping, for our deepening of our faith. Now, don't misunderstand what I'm saying. I know this this sermon can come off as super self-serving, right? Like, I'm a pastor, guys, right? Like, Like, that's the elephant in the room. But yet, this is the next chapter in the book that we're reading and we're examining, and it's God's Word, and He wants us to hear it, right? But again, don't misunderstand what I'm saying about about local church pastors, or rather what Paul's saying. It's not that spiritual leaders are superheroes. I'm not made of some kind of different stuff than you are. You know, Joel and Dan are, are, are not, you know, in these exalted spiritual positions over you or something like that. They're not better than you or more talented or more of more worth than you. Certainly not. Christ died for all. He endured the wrath of God for sinners, and and all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, including the men that lead local churches. But in God's wisdom, this is God's plan, in God's wisdom, He has enabled pastors, called them to lead the church by their teaching of His Word and by their example for our good. And this is of great benefit for the church, great benefit for the church if, if all will turn from the arrogance of seeing themselves as not needing it. Pastors' willingness to be last in this world, when they do that, faithful pastors, it reminds you again and again that seeking to be somebody in this world is not the right goal. Pastor's teaching and their example reminds you that this world is not all there is. It's hinted at in verse 9. Listen, I think that God has exhibited us apostles as last of all, like men sentenced to death, because we have become a spectacle to the world, to angels and to men. Isn't that an interesting little throw-in? We become spectacles to angels. This realm is not all there is. Pastor's willingness to be lowly in this world is seen by the inhabitants of heaven, by the angelic servants. And it's a spectacle not only in this world to men and to this world, the verse says, but to angels. Now this word spectacle means something that captures one's attention. It, it, it's, it comes from the world of the theater. The, the very word that's translated spectacle looks like the word theater. It has this idea of like, it's being so exciting, we're watching this stage play or this boxing match or something like that. Like that. It harkens back to men being thrown into the Colosseum to be devoured by wild animals or slain by a gladiator. It has that sort of negative force to it because... He says that we were last of all like men sentenced to death. We're a spectacle. But Christians aren't dragged into the Colosseum of this world against their will. 
They're not, they're not dragged into persecution or disrepute. They offer their bodies up as living sacrifices for Christ, holding out his message of hope no matter the cost. That is the call to be a Christian. And that's what Christian leaders are to be examples of. And only the power of the Spirit of Christ within a man can cause him to act for the good of others, even if it means being imprisoned or slain. Paul would write um, that he was willing to endure anything for the sake of those who needed to be saved. He said that in 2 Timothy chapter 2. And it is what he describes in verses 11 and 12 of the apostles' willingness to be hungry and roughly treated and homeless yet still working. But notice their thinking during the trial. As I said, this is not against their will. They're they're actively engaged in it. Verse 13, when reviled, we bless. When persecuted, we endure. When slandered, we entreat or respond graciously. That's the very teaching of the Sermon on the Mount, isn't it? And it is quite a spectacle when it's seen. It's a demonstration of what the world sees as ludicrous. Who would willingly embrace such suffering for their faith? Even the angels marvel at such displays and glorify the Savior in it. And those who are willing to live out their faith, even when it's costly, are of great spiritual advantage to you, friends. Your pastors are not perfect men. But by God's grace, we are are enabled by him to teach and live this out at some measure. That's why Paul wrote to Timothy, thus, 1 Timothy 4.16. He says to, to his young protege, the young pastor in Ephesus, pay close attention to your life and your teaching. Persevere in these things, for in doing so, this for, for in doing this, you will save both yourself and your hearers. It's of such great import. The example of faithful leaders willing to live lives of sacrifice spurs the church to do likewise, to see the power of God on display in a life being transformed by the gospel. We do this not just with pastors, right? I, I'm always pushing you towards our senior saints. They have, they have lived trials that we have not. They have found God to be faithful in the loss of a spouse, in the hardships of life, in, in the illness of children, and things that we have not yet experienced. These examples, these, these spiritual guides are of such benefit to us. But if we see ourselves as all filled up, we're, we're going to throw down an obstacle to that benefit. One author wrote of our need to see such things. He wrote this, Gospel life is about deferring. Gospel life is just another way to say Christianity, right? So Christianity is a life about deferring, about elevating others, about pursuing someone else's interests, about being humble and not being arrogant, about giving and not always receiving, about leveraging one's power and influence for those who are powerless. Only the inverted, upside-down, ironic paradigm of the kingdom of God through the person of Jesus Christ will help us to be noble and heroic in the true sense of the term. And that's the great benefit of looking to spiritual guides, friends. 
The willingness of faithful pastors to be mistreated and dishonored by the world is of massive advantage to you if you'll follow their example. And that's what Paul admonishes them to do in verses 14 through 17. The apostle urges them to imitate both himself and Timothy, who he's poured into and trained and now sent to them. Notice that Paul's preaching of the gospel to them is one reason they should follow his example. Timothy was coming to continue that teaching, to remind them of why they should abandon the accolades of the world and live lives of sacrifice for the good of others. And that is the great advantage of humbly looking to the example of how Christian leaders live their lives. This is not an isolated passage, an isolated idea. In the book of Hebrews, in chapter 13 and verse 7, we read this. Remember your leaders, those who spoke to you the word of God. Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. Consider the outcome. The joy of serving Christ here and looking to the inheritance in the world to come where no sacrifice or mistreatment will be required. Only the reward of being exalted with Christ in heaven. Ultimately, ultimately the kingdom of God is seen in the power of the gospel, the power of the good news of Christ's death and resurrection. That's the only true source of power, friends. And when we see ourselves as exalted, we're essentially saying there's another power source found somewhere in this world. But the only true power source is in Christ Jesus, the resurrected one, in the kingdom of God. This is the final point Paul makes in verses 18 through 21. He hopes that that what he has said in this chapter will lead those who have been arrogantly running after fleeting positions of power in this world, seeing themselves as all filled up, that they would turn from their sin and embrace the example of a life of true power found in weakness. In the end, there's one king. There's only one king, the Lord Jesus Christ. And he achieved his throne by the way of the cross. We shouldn't think we'll get there in another route. He too was a spectacle to the world, and we are called to follow his pattern ultimately. He left behind those who would lead the church. And so we are called to abandon the obstacle of arrogance, of seeing ourselves as kings, as those who need no one to shepherd their souls. You see, arrogance keeps the church from benefiting from the shepherds God provides. Perhaps you need to repent of such arrogance today. I don't know. I don't know what the Spirit of God's doing in you today. But I do know God has, has brought you to this place to be under the sound of his word for your good. And so perhaps you need to repent of thinking yourself of as, as, as all spiritually full up in no need of, of further counsel from God's Word, of no need of spiritual guides. Perhaps you have never gotten to the place of, of true humility, of acknowledging that you're not all filled up. In fact, you have great need of someone to come and save you. Perhaps today is the day that you need to 
Turn from your sin and place your trust in the Lord Jesus Christ who died in your place and rose again. Take a moment of quiet reflection and think about these, these things before I pronounce a benediction.